chapter 2, verse 13. Haggith's son, Adonijah, visited Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. She asked, do you come in peace? He answered, yes. He added, I have something to say to you. She replied, speak. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine and all of Israel considered me king. But then the kingdom was given to my brother, for Yahweh decided that it should be his. Now I like to ask you for just one thing. Please don't refuse me. She said, go ahead and ask. He said, please ask the king, Solomon, if he would give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as a wife. For if he won't refuse you, for he won't refuse you. Bathsheba replied, that's fine. I'll speak to the king on your behalf. So Adonai is coming back. On the surface, this sounds really kind of innocent. He just kind of wants to marry a woman and wants permission. But there's a lot more going on here. First, notice that when he comes in, she's immediately suspicious. I mean, how often when your friends come along do you say, do you come in peace? Okay, like, are you coming to create conflict and turmoil, or is this like a casual thing? So she's suspicious, already knowing we can't trust this guy. He then responds by saying, you know that I was actually king and all the kingdom belonged to me. Now that you know kind of is a little jab like, you're kind of responsible for me not having that. But it's also an over-exaggeration. Just because you kind of had some people who liked you for about a day doesn't mean the entire kingdom was securely in your hands. So he's making it so clear that he believes the kingdom was rightfully his, but it's all Bathsheba's fault. The implication is, you owe me. You owe me. However, what's very interesting is he goes on and says, but Yahweh has decided to make Solomon king. Which means he knows that Yahweh has made Solomon king, which means every step that he now takes towards the throne is a blatant, conscious disobedience and rebellion to Yahweh. This once again shows his character. He is not the right guy for the throne. He is not the right guy for the throne. So he says, just grant me one little request. I would like to marry Abishag. Now remember, Abishag was the young virgin who was given to David in marriage, but he never slept with her. So here's the difficulty. Abishag is in this gray area. Technically, she was married to David and belongs to him, which means, legally speaking, she is one of the wives of Solomon because he inherited the wives of David. Now, depending on the king, they would usually either take the wives of their father and consummate with them to seal those treaties with themselves, or they would put them away in some building somewhere and keep them there so that nobody else could be with them to protect the treaties, but they weren't going to be with them because they were their dad's wives, and so they don't want to do that. So it all depends on how morally bound you are as a king in the ancient world, what you do with them. Hopefully Solomon's doing the latter. But either way, they legally belong to him because or their treaties. <clears throat> but at the same time, technically, She's not David's wife because he never consummated it. In God's eyes, it was not consummated. Therefore, they're not really bound in God's eyes. So legally, yes, but in God's eyes, no. And that's the problem here. And he knows that. So he's seizing a loophole. Now, remember one of the things that you would do when you become king is you want the wives of the previous king. Whether you take them as your own or put them in some palace somewhere is up to you. 
but taking the wives of the previous king is claiming your ground. So remember when um, Adonijah kicked David out and David went on the run, Adonijah, David's son, took David's wives, a few of them, and slept with them. And we remember with um, Reuben, way back with Jacob, Reuben took one of the wives of Jacob to try to take the kingship from him. So sleeping with the wives of the previous king was your way of taking kingship. So Adonijah, this is a loophole. Technically, he's not going for the kingship because she didn't technically get consummated with David. But at the same time, she is one of the wives of David, so it kind of is going for the throne. So what Adonijah is probably doing here is taking little baby steps towards the throne. If I creep slowly enough, Solomon will never see me coming. I'll just seize a little power here, get a little foot in the door here, another foot in the door here, put a little two-by-four in there, and then a giant block, and eventually that door will be wide open. He won't see it coming. Now, notice he goes to Bathsheba. Maybe he thinks that she's not politically savvy enough to figure this out. So she's not politically savvy enough to figure this out. And then she'll go with a mother, mother heart to plead with her son. And how could the son say no to her? Nobody will see this coming. This is total political lobbying manipulation. That's what he's going for. Now, does Bathsheba see this? Verse 19, So Bathsheba visited the king Solomon to speak to him on Adonijah's behalf. And the king got up to greet her, bowed to her, and then sat on his throne. He ordered a throne to be brought for the king's mother, and he sat her at the right hand. That right there, the bowing down to her shows his respect and honor to her. He's recognizing her as a queen mother, and the fact that he brings a throne for her shows that she does have power. She does have clout. So there's a really good chance she's going to get what she wants, and she's speaking on behalf of Adonijah, so he's going to get what he wants. She said, I would like to ask you for just one small favor. Please don't refuse me. He said, go ahead and ask my mother, for I would not refuse you. She said, allow Abishag the Shunammite to be given to your brother Adonijah as a wife. King Solomon answers mother, why just request Abishag the Shunammite for him? Since he is my older brother, you should also request the kingdom for him. But Abiathar the priest and for Job's son the Zerai. So she, notice when she asks the request, she strips it of all of its rationale. She just blatantly comes out and says, give Adonijah the wife. He buttered it all up. The kingdom originally belonged to him. He would like to just marry her. It seemed to have a lot of rationale to it. She just strips it of all of its rationale, all of its emotional plea, and just states it out. There is a chance, most likely, she knew exactly what Adonijah was going for. Look, that is an obvious cultural thing that's been around for thousands of years. There's no way she's not aware of it. There's no way she didn't see this. And she's blatantly get it. So she is honoring her promise to Adonijah, but basically she's not allowing it to fall on her feet for whatever happens to Adonijah. She's putting it squarely in the lap of Solomon. No Solomon's response. He says, hey, why not just stop at Abishag? Let's just give him the whole kingdom. Solomon immediately sees what it is. Now, Adonijah doesn't know this, but he's pretty much doomed. 
Because remember, what was Solomon's last words to Adonijah when he's clinging to the horns of the altar? I will let you live as long as you don't show any inkling of ever trying to take the throne again. This is a little inkling. And so Solomon is not going to appreciate that. Verse 23, King Solomon swore by an oath by Yahweh, may God judge me ever so severely if Adonijah does not pay for this request with his life. Now certainly as Yahweh lives, he who also made me secure, allowed me to sit on my father's throne and establish a dynasty for me as he promised. Adonijah will be executed today. King Solomon then sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he killed Adonijah. So he's dead and he's gone. However, there's some warning signs here. Watching a lot of movies and watching a lot of politics and knowing how the ancient world works, you might say, yeah, Adonijah should deserve that. I mean, that's your first basic instinct as humans. This guy tried to take the throne. He's an ungodly person. Solomon warned him. He ignored the warnings, trying to take a throne. If you let this kind of political powder keg go, he is the rightful heir, culturally speaking, to the throne. He is the next oldest son. He's got power. He's got clout. He's not going to stop. This is never going to end. He needs to be dealt with. However, at the same time, once we understand how, one, the biblical law, is there a penalty for a son trying to take the throne? In the law. No. Is the death penalty ever dealt out to people who ignore warnings and still try to take the throne? No. There is no biblical, moral, ethical reason to kill this guy. There's no reason to kill him. That would, I mean, look, if somebody started trying to lobby for the president behind the government's back and Trump and all that kind of stuff, and the government just responded by executing them publicly in front of everybody, that would not go over well in our constitutional law. And our constitutional law is nowhere even close to the biblical law and the character of God. The reality is, this is unjust. This does not fit the biblical law in any kind of way. Now here's the irony of it all. Notice what Solomon said. Now, as certainly as Yahweh lives, he who made me secure, allow me to sit on my father's throne, David's throne, establish a dynasty for me just as he promised. But now I'm going to bypass God completely and take matters in my own hands and kill Adonijah. He's made it clear. Look, did he do anything to get the throne? No. Is there any way in normal historical books that someone like Solomon, who's doing nothing, would get the throne when Adonijah is doing everything to get the throne. Does that happen in real life? No. The fact that he got the throne is all God. Adonijah was dealt with because of God. Solomon is now completely ignoring all that, even though he voiced it in his mouth, and now taking matters in his own hands and dealing with it. He could have exiled Adonijah. He could have dealt with him again. Maybe if he catches Adonijah enough times, Adonijah will get up. Or he could have simply gone to God and pray for it to be dealt with. But remember, David's last words were, be a man, which means obey God. But he also said, deal with Joab because he did oppose me. Deal with Shemai and kill him because he opposed me. And so now that's echoing in his mind somewhere. And Adonijah is opposing him. He probably hears his father's words of, you kill people who oppose you. 
It sounds okay in a political sense, but really there is no moral grounds for this in any kind of a way. And so he is beginning to rule with the sword. He is beginning to rule with the sword. And remember, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Verse 26, the king told Abiathar, the priest, go back to your property and Anath, and you deserve to die. But today I will not kill you because you did carry the ark of the sovereign Yahweh before my father David, and you suffered with my father through all of his difficult times. Solomon dismissed Abiathar from his position as priest of of Yahweh, fulfilling the decree of the judgment of Yahweh made on Shiloh against the family of Eli. Solomon goes to Abiathar. Now remember, Abiathar supported Adonijah becoming king. But we don't know his motives. Nowhere are we told that he was rebelling against David, going against his wish. I mean, remember, Adonijah, culturally speaking, was the next in line for the throne. David was about ready to die. And David had never publicly announced an heir to the throne. But Solomon turns and says, you deserve to die. Why, Solomon? If you deserve to die, why haven't you dealt with him already? Sometime later, Adonijah comes and tries to take the throne. After that, Solomon says, oh yeah, I need to deal with Abiathar. Are you dealing with Abiathar now because you're a little heated and emotional about the fact that Adonijah tried to take the throne and now you're realizing you want to deal with everybody now? What is motivating him? There's nowhere anywhere says that Abiathar deserves to die. Nowhere. Abiathar doesn't deserve to die. So he exiles him, basically. Now, at least that's better than Adonijah. <laughs> and it's a little bit more not, well, it's a little less immoral. But one can't, does it has any idea what's going through Solomon's head. Has no idea what's going through Solomon's head. Now, it does say this is fulfilling God's word by the fact that, remember, the descendants of Eli weren't allowed to sit on the throne or be priests forever. But it never says that Solomon was doing a godly thing by fulfilling the prophecy. It just says the prophecy is fulfilled. Not that Solomon had the right to fulfill the prophecy. And this is a really important thing to understand. Just because God gives you a prophecy that needs to be fulfilled does not mean that you have the right to take matters in your hands and make the prophecy become fulfilled. And this is a very important thing to remember in the Bible. When you read, it'll say, and Baashal fulfilled the prophecy by wiping out the house of Jeroboam. And you would be very tempted to think, well, God prophesied this and he did it, therefore it's a good thing. But you have to remember you taking matters into your own hands and fulfilling God's words is not mean that it's okay to do that. Unless God comes to you through a prophet and says, go and do this, you have no right to do that. And so this is an important thing to understand. It's fulfilled God's prophecy but that doesn't mean he had the right to take matters in his own hands. Has he at any time prayed to God? No. Remember, when David got in trouble and he didn't pray to God, everything went haywire in his house. But when he began to humble himself and pray to God, everything started working out for him, and he didn't have to lift a finger to do anything. Not once is Solomon going to God in prayer. Not to deal with Adonijah, not to deal with Abiathar, and he's not going to do, go to God for the next guys either. They're coming along. He is literally going by his own wisdom and by the sword. Verse 28. 
When the news reached Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, he ran to the tent of Yahweh and grabbed a hold of the horns of the altar, just like Adonijah. When King Solomon heard that Joab had run to the tent of Yahweh and was right there beside the altar, he ordered Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, go strike him down. And when Benaiah arrived at the tent of Yahweh, he said to him, The king says, Come out. But he replied, No, I will die here. So Benaiah sent word to the king and reported Joab's reply. And the king told him, Do as he said, strike him down and bury him. Take away from me and from my father's family the guilt of Joab's murderous bloody deeds. May Yahweh punish him for the blood that he shed behind my father, behind my father's back. He struck down and murdered with the sword two men who were more innocent and morally upright than he. Abner, son of Ner, commander of Israel's army, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of Judah's army. May Joab and his descendants be perpetually guilty of their shed blood, but may Yahweh give perpetual peace to David, his descendants, his family, and his dynasty. So Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, went up and executed Joab, and he was buried at his home in the wilderness. The king appointed Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, to take his place at the head of the army, and the king appointed Zadok, the priest, to take Abiathar's place. Joab realizes, oh my goodness, Solomon is now cleaning house. I'm next. So he flees to the altar. Once again, there's no evidence in the Bible that you should do that or God will honor it. And Solomon basically says, kill him. But Naya's a little hesitant. Wait a minute, he's on the altar in the tent of God. I don't really just want to go in there and kill him. But Solomon says, do it anyways. Now we don't know, did he kill him in the tabernacle or did he drag him out and then kill him? We don't have no idea. Either way, he kills him. Once again... This one's a little bit more difficult because is Joab guilty of murder in cold blood? Yes, twice. Does he deserve to die according to the law? Yes. However, the law also required witnesses, evidence, and a trial with ten elders of great respect overhearing the trial. This is just and that we know as the readers he deserves to die and it's obvious to everybody there but at the same time is still frontier justice, so to speak. Yes, he's king. And yes, he has every right to execute judgment as king. However, Deuteronomy chapter 17, the regulations for the king, make it very clear that the king is not above the law. He doesn't have the right to go outside of the Deuteronomy law and execute justice. No matter how right he might be, he has no right to go outside the law to execute it. Yes, in the end, Joab would have died, but the ends does not justify the means. Because what if the next time Solomon's wrong? If he gets in the habit of executing people that he thinks for a fact that they're guilty, no matter what the evidence says, if he keeps doing this, he can kind of go down a road where he might end up being wrong. And we know it's easy to get things wrong. Even when you have a jury and evidence, you can still get things wrong. And so he's on a dangerous path now. He is living more by his father's advice of the sword than by be a man, which is obedience to God's word. Notice that he keeps quoting God. Not quoting, but giving lip service to Yahweh. May Yahweh deal with me severely if I don't do this. He is unjust in Yahweh's eyes. Yeah, 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 that's all right. But at the same time, this isn't about that. It's about going to God. 
and allowing him to lead you. Nowhere is he submitting to Yahweh. Nowhere is he submitting to Yahweh. Verse 36. Next the king summoned Shimei, and he told him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, but you may not leave there to go anywhere. If you ever go, do leave, you will certainly die, and you will be responsible for your own death. And Shimei said to the king, My master, the king's proposal is acceptable. Your servant will do as you just say, as you say. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem for a long time. So Shimei, remember, his dad told him to kill him. He probably has no emotional connection to Shimmy. Shimmy's never like mocked him on television or on CNN in any kind of way. It was just his dad. So he says, I'm going to put you under city arrest. You're never allowed to leave Jerusalem. Now, technically, he says you're never allowed to move across the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, if you're looking at a map, Jerusalem is right here. And the Kidron Valley is right next to Jerusalem. So you had to move eastward to cross the Kidron Valley. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. But then why did he specifically say, don't ever go eastward? Why can't he just say, don't move Jerusalem? This is kind of, don't leave Jerusalem. So Shimei lived there for a long time. Three years later, two Shimei's servants ran away to King Achish, son of Ma'akah, of Gath. Shimei was told, look, your servants are in Gath. So Shimei got up, saddled his donkey, and went to Achish at Gath to find his servants. So he has two servants that fled to Philistine territory. And Shimei goes after them to get them back. When Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had then returned, the king summoned Shimei and said to him, You will recall that I made you take an oath by Yahweh, and I solemnly warned you, if you ever leave and go anywhere, know for sure that you will certainly die. You said to me the proposal is acceptable, and I agree to it. Why then have you broken your oath and made before Yahweh, and disobeyed the order that I gave you? Then the king said to Shimei, You are well aware of why you have mistreated my father, David. Yahweh will punish you for what you did. But King Solomon will be empowered, and David's dynasty will endure permanently before Yahweh. The king then gave the order to Benaiah, son Jehoiadad, who went and executed Shimei. So Solomon took firm control of the kingdom. He puts Shimei under house arrest, but Shimei breaks that, and now Solomon's killing him. Now, one, there's no law in the biblical Deuteronomic law that says people who break house arrest should be executed. There's no law in the biblical law that says those who publicly ridicule you and make fun of you for being king should be executed, like David wanted. David swore an oath to Shimei that nothing would happen to him. Solomon decided to honor that oath, but then when it conveniently suited him, he reneged on that oath and then executed for him something really frivolous. Never once did he ask, did Shimei have a good reason to leave the city? Yes. Now granted, if you wanted to be wise, knowing you're living under a monarchy, you probably would want to go to the king first and kind of plead your case with him. So that was very unwise of Shimei. But after three years of probably never seeing Solomon and never talking to him and life has been pretty good, you might have kind of the fear of things kind of might have worn off. Who knows? Either way, notice at the very end, he says, may, you be, may Yahweh punish you for the way you mistreated my father. That's the real reason he's killing him. 
Can you imagine if we, we lived our lives that way? Like somebody mistreated your dad and you're like, now that my dad's dead, I'm going to kill you for him, the way you mistreated him. That is not biblical in any kind of way. That's not biblical in any way. Solomon's kind of just willy-nilly picking what he's going to do when he's not. Now here's the, here's the reason why law codes are so important. See, way back in the day, in 3000 B.C. and 2000 B.C., there were no official law codes. Kings rule over city-states. And so one of the disadvantages of not having a law code, and God bless America, <laughs> is that there was no way to say what is right every single day. The king could be in a bad mood and execute somebody for thievery. The next week he's in a good mood and he kind of actually knows this person and he doesn't execute them for the same crime. And you really can't say that's unjust, king, because there's no law to point to. And you really can't get mad at his inconsistency because he might kill you. So there's no law codes. Now, the first law code that was ever developed was in 2100 BC with a king by the name of Ernamu. And Ernamu was a, a Babylonian who instituted a law code. Now, he didn't institute a law code because he was a great king. He instituted a law code because it would bring more stability. His people would know what to expect every single time they came to trial. And it meant that there would be more stability and the people would like him and he might be king a little bit longer. Then the next guy who came along with a law code was Hammurabi. And he came with a law code too. Now, this doesn't mean he got rid of all corruption in the land. But what it does is it starts creating a consistent stability and supposedly supposed to keep the king in check from just willy-nilly doing whatever he wants in frontier justice. Solomon doesn't care. He actually has a law code. His law code is way more binding than anybody else because it wasn't made by man. It was brought to man by God at Mount Sinai. And there is a divine execution for disobeying that law code as opposed to everything else. And yet he's still completely ignoring the law code and going frontier justice on everything, whatever he feels like in the moment. One moment it's that you're safe, the next moment he's not, and he has no biblical law code basis for anything he's doing right now. And the one time that he does with Joab, he still doesn't do it in the right way. And notice that the very last thing the narrator tells you is, so Solomon took control of the kingdom. Now what do you notice about that? Yes. When David was king, it's the narrator said, and God gave the kingdom to David. And God secured the kingdom for David. And God put David on the throne. This says, and Solomon took firm control of his kingdom. This chapter is a thinly veiled morality tale. It feels like this is the right thing to do. He's dealing with all these enemies that have made their life a miserable hell. But really, deep down inside, it's just Solomon following his heart and taking matters in his own hands and not seeking out God. And here's the warning to us. It is very easy for us to get wrapped up in the culture. It is very easy to think, they hurt me, they've attacked me. And now, we don't go out executing people. <laughs> But we may shun them, we may ruin their reputation, we may try to bypass them in some kind of way, we may ignore them or try to, what different things, subtle manipulation things. And we, it's easy to justify why we're right. They hurt me, they insulted me, they deserve this, they should be punished. And in some ways you're right, 
but we don't go to God. And I'm not saying we never do, but we know we never 100% consistently go to God with every problem that we're facing and every ridicule that we are up against. And, and it feels justified, even when lots of people in the culture are saying, yeah, that's right, they deserve that. And you're like, yeah, they did. And God is warning, not once is the law followed, and not once does he go to God. He was doing this through his own strength, with his own lawyers, his own checking account, his own skills, and his own means. And this is the thing that we need to be careful of. So this is how Solomon's beginning his reign. And he doesn't really, he looks better than Adonijah on the surface, but if given him enough time, he could end up being just like an Adonijah. Give him enough time and he could end up being like an Adonijah. And we've seen David act like an Adonijah at times when he was king. And so once again, the narrator is asking the question, what kind of king will, David, will Solomon be? And so far, it's not looking good. So far, it's not looking good. 